What I do best, I build. So you have a concrete wall, and you have Mexico, and you have over here the United States, but you can't see anything, right? So now they take drugs, literally, and they throw it, 100 pounds of drugs. They throw it over the wall. They have catapults, but they throw it over the wall, and it lands, and it hits somebody on the head. You don't even know they're there. <laughs> Believe it or not, this is the kind of stuff that happens. Dad does. Dad does. Drugs. Dad does drugs. Hi, welcome to episode three of Dad Does Drugs. Thank you so, so much for the great feedback on episode two. There was a lot of love for The Loop and all the brilliant work they do. I was blown away uh, by the day that I spent with them and I was also really excited, thrilled uh, that I got so much good feedback about it and, uh, and they did as well online. I wanted to convey the whole process of the service that they provide in the podcast, you know, take you through it all. And, uh, and I think it seemed to work. So um, thank you for that. It's been an up and down week. That was the up. It's, uh, it's quite nerve wracking putting together a podcast. You kind of lay yourself bare, especially when it's a, a slightly sensitive subject. I, you realise that you are telling people that you don't know, but also people that you do know a lot about your life and uh, you're airing uh, some things which they perhaps just didn't know about you. And, uh, and then there's that gut-wrenching thing of what if no one listens so it's uh yeah it's been it's it's funny uh i'm enjoying the process but it's um it's sort of a bit kind of draining i suppose at some points um anyway if you know of a drug testing skeptic if you think someone that you know could benefit from listening to it please ask them to listen to last week's episode i hope it'll change minds uh this week on this episode we're going to talk about drug dealing the main bulk of uh the conversation will be with a fascinating researcher and author Dr Mohammed Kazim uh, you can find links to articles that he's uh, had published recently in broadsheet newspapers on Albanian mafia cocaine trafficking, uh, county lines gangs, uh, posting heroin home from Pakistan and uh, the details of how to buy his book uh, Young Muslim and Criminal in the episode blurb on your podcast provider so have a look at that um, i'm just going to start with a little bit though of uh, one of the chats i recorded this week both of them touched on county lines drug dealing that's the way i roll these days one was with a detective superintendent scott mckechnie serious and organized crime at hampshire police uh, you'll hear all of that conversation on next week's episode it's frightening talking to the police even for a podcast uh, i tried not to be a complete chicken in the face of uh, a large quite uh, serious uh, scottish policeman uh, i did ask him about legalization about uh, the futility of the war on drugs whether the police get ground down and demoralized by fighting a losing battle you can decide for yourself uh, whether i managed to uh, nail in Paxman style or, or what when you get to listen to it next week the other chat that I had this week which touched on county lines uh, has really stuck with me this is the sort of down I suppose of the week it's hung like a sad cloud around me in the days since I spoke to Brian Reed, a lovely man he lost his daughter Lydia aged 26 in 2016 she died after taking heroin uh, it he thinks was adulterated with fentanyl which is a much stronger opiate painkiller than uh, heroin. Uh, she was recovering from a heroin dependency, but then 
came out of the fairly successful few months of, of rehab uh, and relapsed and then took this much stronger dose, overdosed and died. And, uh, you know, it's a heartbreaking conversation to have with someone. I can't begin to imagine it. So um, the full chat with Brian will be a future episode where we'll concentrate on, on heroin. But here's a bit from a tangent that we drifted uh, down where we talked about drug dealing and he explains quite clearly how county lines drug gangs operate he's been doing quite a bit of research into drugs since lydia's death we were chatting in a museum cafe so the background noise that you can hear is a school group uh, looking around a titanic exhibition But I just mentioned County Lines. Yes. Um, this is often in the news without being properly explained, I feel, but I know from my involvement with the um, speakers from the LEAP organisation that County Lines are a huge problem. Basically what happens is that however hard you try to eliminate the dealers in one town, and, and you may succeed in completely eliminating them, there is an almost inexhaustible supply of people ready, willing and able to take over that trade. But they tend to do it by proxy. What they do is recruit local children, frequently children who have been excluded from school or some, in some way disaffected. They're able to be enrolled by the, by the group or ensnared by the group. Initially, it starts in a very simple way by befriending the young person, um, saying, could you do a little job for me, deliver this package, I'll get you a nice pair of shoes or yeah. some clothes that you want, and, and that's, that's fine, the, the child thinks. Unfortunately, it doesn't stop that way, because very shortly, the supply of cash or nice shoes dries up, and then you find that you're completely ensnared by a gang, you have to deliver the drugs. You tend to be then paid in drugs rather than cash, which you may well be tempted to take for yourself, develop your own dependency. But as time goes on, you are so deeply in this mire that there is no way out of it. And the very last people that, that they would ever go to are the police or other authorities because they are so terrified of repercussions. Drug gangs have almost unlimited money, reach, extremely good memories. They will catch any young person who tries to leave the group or who rats on them as they see it, and the revenge they extract will be harsh. Uh, so that's Brian, Brian Reed. He gives talks on behalf of the drug law reform charity Anyone's Child. Uh, you'll hear more from him in a future episode, like I said. Uh, now, though, uh, to South Wales to meet criminology researcher Dr Mohamed Kazim. And then at the end of the podcast, obviously, I will have a chat with my 13-year-old son again about what we've heard. Sorry about being a bit late. That's <laughs> all right. No worries. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, we got cut off just as we were talking on the phone. So I'm, I'd like to talk to you about a drug crime, sort of from the perspective okay. of young people involved in it. 
because mm-hmm. it seems from reading a few articles that I've uh, I've seen of your research that that's mm. the sort of world that you move in. So there was a piece in the Telegraph about your the, the reason you're in Swansea, I guess, which is why I'm speaking to you now. Uh, yes. So this is a, a county lines thing. How, how you're a criminologist at a, at a university in Leeds, is that right? That's right. Yes. Uh, so how how have you um, how have you found yourself in in Swansea with a county lines gang? Interesting. Um, I've I've been I've spent quite a bit of time in Wales over the years. I studied in Wales. I did my PhD in Wales, um, and after my book Young Muslim and Criminal. After publishing that, I, I, I started doing lots of different research. Um, and one of my sort of areas of research was to understand why young people um, are working for county line gangs or any sort of gangs selling drugs. And of course, with county lines being a massive issue um, in the media over recent time, I, I took it upon myself to understand what's going on with these county line gangs um eh, why are they why is it so easy for them to set up and supply um places like swansea and other sort of places in wales um and 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 the research was was done with um a, a chap called will crisp from the telegraph nice guy we we spent about three four months kind of understanding the dynamics of a, a group of London-based, London, based London originate from London, they've moved to Swansea to supply heroin and crack. So um, we, we got to see how they went about their business, we understood the profits that they were making, um, and we, we saw the, 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 the number of customers that they have in a city like Swansea. And uh, we 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 observed them on one particular occasion in uh, Central Swansea, and w- myself and Will we got there first before this the individual we were going to talk to got there at this destination he arranged to meet with us. And initially, the, the, we we observed that there was about 15 or 20 drug addicts hanging about, and um, they came over to our car, assuming that we were the drug dealers. Um, and we explained no we were waiting for someone so we parked the car slightly further back and the individual that we were meeting turned up and within the space of a minute he must have supplied about 15 of them with heroin packs were delivered through the doors through the windows and 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 he then realized that we were parked there and he came over to speak to us so we we got to see what was going on and how the, and eventually I spoke to some of the young kids that were working for this um particular individual one was 15 the other was 16 and it seems I was fascinated to understand why they were working in this trade at this age why is a 15 year old not living with his parents why is he moved from London to Swansea and why is he selling an illegal substance which he could potentially receive a, a lengthy custodial sentence if he was found by the police to be selling this drug. So I, I asked this, this chap who we can refer to as H. I asked H, why are you here? He said because he'd been kicked out of school. 
um, he, he he was involved with the police. His his mum was uh, a single mother. She she was struggling to to kind of control him. He was getting involved in some um, some groups of lads down in London, and um, he had his windows smashed a few times. Mum was really she'd had enough of him. So a way out for him was to come to a new city, a new location, and and to try and earn himself some money. So for him, it was the money that was appealing. It was the money that he wanted to make. But in the process, he was clearly being taken advantage of. And, and this is something I speak about regularly, is that we are not, as a society, understanding that these kids who are supplying for these organized gangs are actually victims. They're victims and they need to be seen as victims. They need to be supported like victims, like a victim of any crime. They are you know, they are they're taken advantage of, their 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 naivety is taken advantage of. Um and it's 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 far too late. It's it's too late that support is eventually getting there, but we still, as a society, see them as drug, drug, drug dealing. But we need to kind of hold the punishments back and, and understand that this, these, these, these are kids who are forced into this sort of trade. Um, so, are they threatened? Uh, what, what kind of, what's the bigger dealer got over them? You know, I, I'm, I'm guessing that they, they approach a dealer to start with because they want to buy some weed off him or something and then they what, gradually get sort of enticed mm. in with a bit of money to doing some dealing to pay for their weed and then it sort of escalates is that how it works yeah it, it can vary um sometimes it can be um a debt that they owe the drug dealer they've they've purchased a certain amount of drugs in the past from this dealer and now the only way to pay this debt off is is, is by working for this dealer too many of them are um, often in these secluded properties and are, are, are forced to supply. Um, but I think the, the 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 particular reasons why they are supplying can can vary. I mean, I was just speaking to a certain colleague, and he he said that one reason why um, a, a certain dealer was supplying for county lines was because his fam his older brother had a debt to these drug dealers and he had to repay this debt so because the older brother was no longer there in the picture the the young brother was now having to to do what he had to do to to repay this debt i mean there's lots of different reasons we've got to look at the situation these kids find themselves in they're living in certain they're living in cities such as london birmingham populated overly populated not much opportunity for young people to kind of make money and if a, if if a kid isn't doing so well in school, if he's not spending much time with his family anyway, life is not good for him. And 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 the drug older drug dealer throws this um, vision of him moving to a new city, having to, to the opportunity to move away from uh, these kind of gangs that he's already involved in, and now he can start making money. He's going to say yes. He's obviously going to move away. He's going to try and make money. He's going to see this as an opportunity to to better himself. And that's exactly what's happening. It's it's not when we talk about forced into county line gangs, we don't mean they are forced um, by having a gun held to their head. It's forced through manipulation. It's forced uh, through through taking advantage of their naivety. So yeah, there's lots of different reasons. And then is there no way out? I, I mean, 
once you're in um is there a fear of violence or you know something to stop you leaving or is it just that there's nowhere else to go you're sort of in and at least you're getting some money that way so what else what else would you do mm. yeah what what could you do could you go back to london now and start living back in those type of ghettos where life is already quite difficult or here now in wales life is probably in many ways nicer I, I was doing some research with some two young kids who were living in a nice, well-to-do apartment. Um, they had the Xbox, they had a, another console there, and you know they were living a, a relatively good life. And this, they told me themselves that life here in Swansea is is boring, but yet way better than life in London. Um, and they were making money in the process. I mean, 15, 16-year-olds wouldn't be making much money just because they wouldn't be able to get much work at that age. Uh, but these kids are making a couple of hundred pounds a week, and for them, that's a lot of money. Why, why do they want to talk to you as well? Um, is, is there a sort of... I, I know a, a lot of um, gangs and all, you know, all sorts of young people these days, everything is shared on social media. Is there a bit of them just wanting to talk and show off a bit about what they're doing? Or why are they happy to chat with you? Yeah, good question. I... It took me many months to get them to talk to me. Um, initially, although I'm from an ethnic minority myself, um, I thought those parallels would help. Um, but no, um, I had to build trust, build rapport, and um, my 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 biggest reason for doing this research is to kind of support the, the, those individuals who have been taken advantage of. And why they want to talk to me is is because I offer this opportunity for them to talk to me anonymously i don't um ethically i don't report the activities to the police which some people would argue that's what you should do but then as a researcher i would like to get my research um you know i would like to complete this research to benefit young people throughout the country and hopefully educate schools and colleges and the police in how best to deal with uh, victims of county line gangs so that's what you know, you're honest with them about who you are. You know, you're a, you're a criminologist. They, they 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 don't think you're someone else. You're not undercover. No. Uh, yeah, initially, they they assume that this this chap called Mohammed is. Why is he asking us these questions? Was what? Why is it question after question? Yeah. Uh, but but then once the report is built, and I have to tell them that this is something I've done for the past decade i've wrote a book i've done lots of publications i've worked with different um newspapers and researching and up till now not not no, none of my researchees have been convicted of their crime so don't be afraid i would, would appreciate you being open and honest to me um and i work i work on building rapport i i don't go into the field of research um, expecting too much too quick I, I, I over time I gradually work with these guys to build rapport and, and, and sometimes it might even be going out and having food with them and socializing with them and and, and and through this process eventually trying to understand their lives and how comfortable are you with all the drug use and uh, drug dealing going on around you i mean i guess you're a criminologist so you're interested in crime but why why drugs particularly and how do you feel about it um why am i why am i interested in this area this area is an area which um I and mean, i come from bradford originally from bradford and drugs in bradford have affected the lives of so many and 
the the, the aspect that I'm fascinated with is, is, isn't the drug use so much, it's the drug dealing, how easy it is for young people to get involved in drug dealing. And once involved in drug dealing, how difficult it can be to get out. Um, the money's good, you sometimes you get used to this money you want to make more money and then through the, the kind of gang rivalry sometimes it's it can often be almost impossible to get out um particularly once with a criminal record if you have a criminal record you know you're going to struggle to find a job elsewhere so often the only way to make money is to continue to to supply drugs um i've come across certain young people who've um been convicted of supplying drugs several times and have spent lengthy custodial sentences but yet who return after come out of prison and, and, and go back to selling um, illegal drugs so I'm, I'm interested in this what's why are they um, going back to selling drugs I mean what opportunities are there for these young people how can they turn back um, from a life of crime and start to to, to live law-abiding lives and I think the reality is when when opportunities are few and you can make money through illegal avenues then young people will turn to shortcuts um where's the big money is it in drugs uh, like crack and heroin or is it in uh, coke powdered coke or is it weed what what's the or is it in all of it money is in drugs whether it's selling paracetamol from the pharmacist or whether it's selling cocaine there is money in drugs and it's all to do with how you are you are selling your product how cheap you can buy your product and how um how you market your product and you know how you can re invest back the your profits into in, into this product so it's all to do with the demand is there if you look at statistics cannabis crack cocaine heroin um the users uh, have, have just been going up and up so demand is there competition is 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 is, is incredibly fierce in some cities um and this is why you see some some brutal crimes take place in gang in gangs sort of wars but the money is there the money is these drugs are incredibly profitable and these young people see this as an easy way to make big big money Another article that I read that you contributed to is in The Observer, and if people want to look it up, Kings of Cocaine, how the Albanian mafia seized control of the UK drugs trade. So this is about a gang called the Helbanians, mm. um, who seem to have taken over the, the retail cocaine trade, uh, mm. I'm guessing through London, and you're quoted in the article of saying that they've got this fantastic business model. That, you know, If they were on Dragon's Den, the Dragons would be giving them money. So... I guess you're quite taken or fascinated by the business savvy of these of these criminals. Yeah, um, sometimes what people forget is that drug dealers are business men and women. They have to, like I said earlier, ensure that they that, that their drugs are of a good um, good standard. They have to ensure that the price they pay for the drugs uh, are relatively cheap in comparison so that this allows them to make a profit and then they have to then market this product and the Albanian model has been 
excellent in, in, in the sense that they've made these links with, 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 with big drug lords of certain countries. They're able to bring in this um, product at a relatively cheap price and then they're able to supply this product to pretty much anywhere within the UK, particularly in, in, focused in London and um, its surrounding areas. And, and it's a bit like the Tesco model where, you know, Tesco's are open and they're everywhere. So, you know, if, if the Albanians are able to offer drugs and are able to get these drugs delivered on time and the hours of business are open all the time, then, then, then they're going to take over those drug um, dealers who are, are only able to, buy, to supply these drugs at certain times and sometimes are struggling themselves to get enough of the drug. And, and the other reason why the Albanians are so successful is they work... They, they work in a group, they work closely, incredibly closely, and and, and, and they manage to kind of deliver this drug um, at a good price. And and if they are challenged by other local drug gangs, they seem to... They're not, they're not afraid. They seem to use violence and put people in their place, if needs be. So if I buy drugs on the dark web in, in a provincial town like Portsmouth are, are they uh, you know have they are they like Tesco like you say they've got outlets online as well as um street dealing in in London no as as far as i'm aware the 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 dark web isn't used so much this is delivery of a drug the there's the the money involved in this product is um you're talking hundreds of thousands at times um and and this just can't be done over the internet, there needs to be a face-to-face -face interaction. There needs to be an exchange of money, and it may well be that in some time down the line, um, this will be a, an area which drug dealers would be using even more. I'm aware that you know you do get lots of people selling drugs on the dark web, but I think when it comes to substantial amount, this is usually now done. As it continues to be done over the face-to-face -face interaction. Okay. Um, yeah, but I guess as, as it trickles down, there might be people further down the yeah down the line who are selling it on exactly. online or whatever. But only exactly. in sort of just to you know the average yeah. consumer buying a, a gram or something at a time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and what is the? I, I read recently in a book that um, a gram of coke used by someone in London uh, equals four square meters of destroyed Amazon rainforest. Um, mm -hmm. What other nasty costs are, are you aware of you know have you sort of seen when people are buying a, a drug in in the in the uk in a relatively mm -hmm. clean and sanitized way now uh, especially if you order it online and it becomes posted to you um what other costs have been incurred before someone shoves it up their nose I'd, i really don't know i'd be making it up if i told you but there, there will be costs um but you've got to look at the opposite. You've got to look at how this money sometimes benefits people as well. And sometimes you've got these sort of... What, what I, I always argue is, is that if you don't give people the opportunity to make money in a legal avenue, then they will turn to illegal substances. And sometimes people over in certain countries, like you know, if you look at Colombia and if you look at Afghanistan, there are people out there making a living through shipping out drugs um, and, and people will argue that 
people, these people are taken advantage of and they are shipping in drugs and they don't know what they're doing, but these drugs are giving them money. So the whole chain is making money from the very start of where the drug is coming from to, to, to people through this chain all are benefiting financially by, by, by. so the victims are at the end of the line the people who are using these substances and yeah I, I, I don't know if I answered that question properly but no, I, I, I think I might have not understood that question well no I think I think you did but I think it was one of those questions that you know no one really knows you know yeah. unless, unless you've been at every stage of a, of a drug deal uh, mm-hmm. you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily know that's a bit of a silly question but so you just mentioned about the or I was just thinking about the legalization if if you've got these networks supplying it really efficiently like you know it's amazing sort of business model and they're mm-hmm. they're, they're like car dealers they're, they're getting good deals for the you know they're buying at a cheap price they're selling at a more expensive mm-hmm. price they're, they're actively wheeling and dealing um, mm. if at some point in the future those markets get legalized and regulated and we and we buy uh, cannabis, like the, you know, uh, like from alcohol, a shop, for example, yeah. like like alcohol, yeah, or and even like the um, um, stimulants. You know, if you mm-hmm. were buying ecstasy or, or cocaine from a, a sort of mm-hmm. pharmacy and you're allowed to get it in some way, then um, would would the same criminals do you think be able to transfer into that market, or, or would it cut them out and uh, and then they've got nothing to uh, mm. earn money from? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good question. Um, you, the, those criminals who are lower down in, in, in the drug world will probably move from, from cannabis onto a, an, another drug. So you'll get um, them selling perhaps co- cocaine or even heroin or crack. But um, those who are well established in the drug world um, will even consider opening certain businesses. There, there have been so far um, certain numbers who are getting into the cannabis oil um, and the cannabis products, um, and they, they, they're looking for opportunity. If 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 cannabis is legalised, then you know certain drug drug dealers will look at this avenue to see if there's potentially making legal money now. Um, and if they have the assets to do so, then surely they will think about this because at the end of the day, it's not it, it, it's money that they're more interested in. It, they don't go out to deliberately destroy people's lives. This comes along with making money in their eyes. One of the other stories that I've read of yours recently, which I, I think, I, I guess, perhaps makes up a, a bit of your book, Young Muslim and Criminal, was that the guys that you talked to who've moved from... Bradford to Pakistan and are posting back heroin uh, yeah. to the to the rest of their gang, um, mm-hmm. which sounds like a, a sort of safe and cushy way of uh, drug smuggling. Almost they're one step removed mm-hmm. from anyone. So, but who's got the short story? Is it the short story? Is it them out in Pakistan, sort of living incognito as good Muslims, uh, you know, not driving beamers or, or trying to draw attention mm-hmm. to themselves, or is it the ones? back home who've got the harder job receiving the parcels and I guess doing the street deals? I'd say having spent time out there in Pakistan, I'd say the easier, the cushier life would probably be for those back in Pakistan, you know their their parents have invested heavily in Pakistan, built humongous properties, houses that they live in and 
the police are not always on top of them. They have this um, sort of this this kind of calmness about themselves and their behaviour, and they kind of are just in the back, in the shadows of of of, of, of the the kind of cities out there. They don't really need. They're not in the limelight. They're not. Um, in the in the in the in the in the police's face all the time, so they don't they're not ducking and diving, whereas the guys here seem to be constantly ducking and diving. Some are going into prison, some are coming out, some are um, being arrested. You know, their houses are being searched, and yes, they make the money, but um, it comes with the, a price. Whereas it, with with the Pakistani guys, they were they were living cushy lives. They did okay, weren't driving these fast cars and so forth, but it seemed that they live in a life which was less stressful and the other reason why they were out there was because they were wanted by the police um, here in the UK so for them being out there was a, was, was a way of staying away from the law and, uh, and, and this, this is a country where they originate from I, I remember speaking to one of the young people and he, one of the people and he was saying to me um, this is where we're from, this is where our ancestors were from, this is the land that we should get to know. It's Pakistan, it's a, it's a, a place that shouldn't really be alien to us. We speak the language, uh, we have relatives living out here, and uh, life, life could not be better. That was the words of one of them. Um, whereas here in the UK, life, life tends to get tough and especially for drug dealers you know the the police in some areas are doing a great job but i think um i think often you know you've got to be shrewd you've got to be on the ball to 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 evade the police all the time and you've got to be watching your back watching over your back constantly and these guys in pakistan were making substantial amount of money by just sending this these drugs over in certain clothing and certain items um yeah uh, the, the stereotype of a drug dealer for most people would be uh, a black man uh so a muslim drug dealer is probably a surprise to some people it, you know and i guess you know you found it an interesting area and wanted to write the book about it um is is it kind of common as common across any racial group you can be black and muslim at the same time so yeah. i don't think <laughs> i don't think the aspect of being muslim is the issue the aspect of of of, of um what i found interesting was my young muslim and criminal the book i wrote i spent time with um 19 young pakistani muslim men british born so I looked at the lives of their parents and grandparents who who came over in the 50s and 60s to work in the textile trades in Bradford and the surrounding areas and all of them by and large appeared to be law-abiding individuals um, very respectful you know Islam wasn't something that they they, they, they really practiced so much they prayed now and then they didn't even some of them didn't even know their own faith that well but they considered themselves to be Muslim so now we were down to this third generation of Pakistanis in the UK and these these guys were proud to be Muslim so they're proud to be Muslim they always they wanted to highlight that they were Muslim first and then they were British Pakistanis after um, and yet 19 of these were involved in selling drugs and they've been in and out of prison at various different points. So the question I ask is, 
is it the Muslim in them that's making them criminal, or is it the British in them, that, in them that's making them the criminal? Okay. Um, um, what did you find? What do you think? I let you answer. <laughs> I let you answer that. Well, because I, mean, I, 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 I don't personally think it was the Muslim in them that was making them the criminal. I think no. it was. I am answering your question. Um, it was definitely the British. You know, adapting. They were born British, raised um, young men. They spoke English as their first language. Um, the, the music they listened to was all English. The, the TVs, the programs they watched, the, the way they communicated, everything was British. And I compared them with the earlier generations of Pakistani migrants who were all law-abiding, who never really got involved in drugs. So what's, what we need to answer is, what's gone wrong? Why are today so many young Muslim men involved in crime? Why is the British prison population, why is 16% of the British population made up of Muslims when when we've got a British Muslim population of 5%? So these are all questions that one needs to ask and answer. Something is going wrong somewhere. I mean, I, I look at it as there's, there's, a, there's a number of different reasons. You know, you've got, yes, you have Muslims who are involved in crime and so forth, but then you need to ask uh, maybe the police or the the courts working in ways to kind of criminalise these this group of um, this group of people because surely they can't be more criminal than any other group. But the image shows us that they look like they are. Does uh, with, with the ones you you know the guys that you spoke to does their faith pr- make them sort of better drug business people in that their does, does their faith mean that they're not you know sampling their own wares they're not uh, as mm-hmm. um, chaotic uh, yeah. as if as, you know does it mean that they're focused on the money and running it like a business and it's just a product mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what it is faith for them was about claiming to be a muslim and claiming to be belong to this muslim family but yet in actual fact very little um, very little practice was done. They, they they only went to the mosque on Fridays. They didn't fast in the month of Ramadan. They didn't do any of the Islamic teachings. They didn't follow any of them. They drunk alcohol. They they, they slept with women. Um, so I don't think being a Muslim helped them in any way. It helped their illegal activities in any way. I know what you're trying to get to is that traditionally these guys, their parents were good businessmen they were you know in shopkeepers or they were organized in their businesses and 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 sometimes their sort of muslim way helped them and encouraged them to be focused but with with this group of young men i i didn't find that focus came from islam if any i didn't find much focus i found the focus was money it was all about money and if and they wanted to make as much money as possible so it was living a life of trying to achieve you know, trying to achieve financially. Uh, but it so- sounds like the system is still racially biased. You know, it sounds like there's still racism in the, in the, in the way that young people are, are policed and, and crime is uh, mm. looked at. Um, but I, I, does being an Asian Muslim uh, almost give you an advantage? Are you slightly less suspicious, do you think, to the police than if you're a, a black you know, Muslim or not? Uh, it, I'd, I'd say I, I wouldn't say any longer. I think right. going back some years, 
you know, your black individual, young black man was seen as more criminal than an Asian. An Asian was seen as being more focused in education or business. But the image has changed, and it's changed drastically. That if you look in some areas now, the Asian man is seen as a potential danger, not only through selling illegal substances or being more criminal, but being seen as a potential terrorist. Right. Um, the way um, the books you're writing, the articles you're contributing to in the in the media, um, are you are you sort of satisfied or pleased that your research is going somewhere positive? Mm. Definitely. I, I, I'm, I'm more than surprised, I think. I didn't expect this much um, interest from MPs, from the media, from book publishing companies and, and from the wider public. Um, so I, I, I am amazed at the interest people are showing um, and want to listen, which is exactly what I'm trying to do, is trying to tell people about my research. Um, but, but then the question is, is anything going to happen from this? And unfortunately... I'm optimistic. I hope something happens for the benefit of any sort of any individual who's from a deprived community, from a deprived family. You know, I don't want them to be taken advantage over by um, by drug gangs. But I think society needs to to change. It needs to show more support for for people who come from these sort of families and kind of support them so that they're not being used and, and and not being taken advantage of from drug dealing gangs um, and I mean in terms of my research with Muslims I think it's I've, I've, I've asked lots of questions I've highlighted that yes the prison population is substantial um, why, are, why are so many Muslims in prison I mean should they be there should the punishments that they're getting are they you know, sufficient for the crimes they're committing but then the other aspect of my research which I want to highlight is that our young Muslim men, are they, are they getting the jobs that they also deserve? You know, I've, I've come across young educated Muslim men who've struggled to get employment um, and some of them have turned to drug dealing to make money. So, you know, if you give people an opportunity to change, people will change. If you give them another, sh demonstrate to them that there are different ways of making money. Yes, you've got these excellent... Um, business skills of supplying a drug can we can we somehow try and get those skills by, by transfer the skills over so that you can supply a product which is legal so um, yeah I, 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 I think things will change but it'll take time and sort of just as a final question what sort of a change do you think is necessary to you know help some of these like you say these vulnerable people in vulnerable communities and uh living mm. pretty shitty lives and so they get you know lured into this world is is it a sort of starting to regulate some of these drugs and make them legal and change the mm -hmm. criminal criminalization of all the sort of drug use and and drug supply yeah i i think Speaking broadly, I think communities need to work together with the police and, and, and set up groups and support. I mean, in education, schools need to work. Um, schools need to do a much better job at identifying what's going on. Um, a kid's been missing from a school for three weeks. We need to know where he is. He's, where's he gone? OK, he's 15, but we need to still be aware where, that, that gangs are not taking advantage of him or her. Um, 
and and in in, res- in respect to the Muslim focusing on that sort of aspect, I think communities need to do much more. I think um, not not that I'm very critical of mosques, but I think mosques now need to play a bigger role. Um, mosques need to work closer with the police. They need to work closer with their communities, and they need to support young Muslims from becoming involved, be- becoming easily involved in crime. I don't see this happening enough. I think some mosques are doing great work, but broadly speaking, we are still a bit behind. Are they in denial that they don't want to admit that it's going on? Don't want to look too deeply? Do you think that they're? I think that members? I think the speed of transition has hit them, and they just they don't know which way to move. I think um, you know if you look at mosques, they, they they they'd love to be supporting their young people better but they just don't know what to do. Uh, one way, what they can potentially do is, you know, have, have groups where young, groups which are led by young people, but potentially even led by young crim- uh, criminals, ex-criminals, ex-convicts, ex, you know, drug dealers who can work with the mosques and, and work with these groups and kind of speak to them and give them time. Time is crucial and I think sometimes if you look at any sort of vulnerable young person what, what is he or she looking for is is someone to give them time someone to tell them that they, they can do certain things and, and these gangs do that at the start they tell them yes you can make lots of money you can do this and you can do that you can have your own car by the in six months you can have your own flat and you can you can be driving this and you can go back to london and impress your gang so it's all about making that individual feel important and and i'm sure we will if we work together we can make a change I feel like I'm singing a song there now. <laughs> <laughs> Have you uh, uh, to finish on an optimistic note? Then uh, this is we're in um, uh, yeah lovey dovey mode. Uh, have you been heartened by like the individual sort of journeys, progress of of people that you've come uh, come into contact with, and and have they managed to you know get out, make a better fist of doing something else? Do you know um, this is this is the this is this is where I'm. I, I get worried because I don't see enough young people making that change. I see them going into the cycle of prison, coming back out, going back into drugs, going back into prison, coming back out, and and, and it's going on far too many times. And then the only time that I'm starting to see any sort of slow uh, slowing down in the criminal activities is is with with the aging process, where now the kids on the block are are, are running the streets. So now they're a bit older and they kind of have nothing else to do but and then they struggle to then get work so it's that we want to change them when they're younger when there's 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 more more kind of going on in their lives when we can phase them into education or get them degrees when they're 35 40 so forth i think it's a bit too late to really be doing much with them so yeah i don't see enough yeah it's hard well, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for talking to me. And um, thank you. I'll um, put links to the articles and uh, and your book with the podcast when I publish it. But um, yeah, thanks ever so much for your time and good luck with the the rest of the work. Thank you so much. Thank you. So here we are again, and you on previous recordings you and I uh, you've literally just finished listening to the episode when we've then had a chat yeah. but um, uh, there's been a few hours you listened to mm. it this morning on your way back from 
the gym. So I haven't spoken to you about it all day, and it was the conversation with uh, Mohammed Kazim, the hmm. drug dealing researcher. So we're talking more about drug dealing than drug using uh, yeah. this time. What did you, what did you think of what he had to say? Um, I was interested about like the um, young like drug runner type people, like young like fifteen to sixteen year old drug dealers. I was like, whoa. I know it seems a crazy, yeah. it seems a world away from our experience of life, doesn't it? Yeah. Although I'm sure sometimes. Yeah. I'm annoying. We have a relatively happy home, don't we? We uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, to think that your home life is so bad that the idea of going to Swansea to sell drugs instead is a better option is yeah, pretty amazing. Mm. Uh, amazingly awful to think about. And yeah, at 15, you know, I mean you're 13 and I can't imagine someone 15 living in a city away from home. Hmm. with a flat just with an xbox in it waiting to go out and sell drugs is their next thing to do i think parents probably have a lot of fear about their kids experimenting with drugs because the way we the way our my generation 40 something uh were told about drugs was just all drugs are bad headlines across newspapers you know would always be about evil drug dealers and things like that and i think what's interesting is i've read a bit more and i'm no expert on this but listening to someone like mohammed kazima i'm sort of like ah the stereotype of some evil drug dealer is not really true there there are people who run businesses and the sideline of it is drugs or maybe most of it is drugs and the sideline of it is something legitimate and then there are people that are just kids and they get kind of yeah lured in just to make a bit of money but i think what i also thought became apparent talking to him was that that world is a world away from what most people would ever experience isn't it yeah you know even if you go to university and smoke a lot of weed or whatever you know if if a, if a child of mine or a child of uh, any of our friends does that they're not going to end up being a county lines drug smuggler <laughs> drug dealer no out in because there's two completely different worlds i think you know the sort of yeah the recreational drugs that most commonly get used in this country are cannabis maybe a bit of ecstasy whereas those dealers are selling heroin and crack cocaine to a very small group yeah of hardcore dependent drug users and that is not something that any anyone that we know is ever likely to cross paths with really or fall into yeah uh, one thing that's interesting about dealing do you remember in um, last week's episode there's a story that um one of the guys in the harm reduction bit talked about about those lads in Plymouth who um, went to a concert, a base hunter concert. So they lived in the north of Devon and they travelled down to Plymouth in the south of Devon to go to this gig by this, I think he's Swedish music, uh, electronic music artist called Bass Hunter. All I ever wanted was to see you smiling, smiling. And they go down there and I think there's four lads and one of them buys some ecstasy 
for the rest of them for and then he goes to jail because one of them dies. That's right, yeah. I think two of them die, but they all go, they all end up in hospital, but two of them die. Hmm. And so, and then what's happened afterwards is that the guy that bought the drugs for them all is Went to now... jail? Uh, yeah, uh, I think and it was... And he went for buying a round of drinks, didn't he? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And the scary thing about dealing is that I think most of us, we, we, you know, we, with our friends, we share things. You know, you at the moment are only half concentrating on my dad lecture because you're playing a game in the background. And that is a game that you and your mate have a bit of a sharing deal thing with, isn't it? You know, if, yeah. if you buy a game for the Xbox, you give him the code to download it onto his and he does the same for you. Mm. And that's kind of what mates do, isn't it? And the dangerous thing that has cropped up a few times in in news stories that I've read about is where someone buys the drugs, but they buy them to share with their mates. But because you gave it to someone else, because you gave it to your friend, you are classed as a dealer. You you supplied the drugs, and and supply yeah. of drugs is what drug dealing. That's the crime. It's the difference between. If, if you get caught in possession of class A drugs, you might get, it would be a very small amount of jail, jail time if it's just a bit of personal use. But if you had enough on you to supply, or if in the case of this lad, you supplied someone who died, then you can go to prison for years, up to 25 years for drug dealing. Yeah. Which is insane, isn't it? So that's quite a scary and sobering thought. I've done that before. I've bought drugs before and given them to other people. Yeah, and you could have like just, you know. And if it had gone wrong, or you just got caught with them in your pocket before before you gave them to the other friends, then you would have, I mean, my life would have been over, if you like, you know. At that age, I potentially could still be in prison now. Yeah. And would never have had you, you know. It just, it's just... Um, insane how badly wrong it could go how serious it is yeah and whatever you think whatever i might think about the the morals of the the war on drugs and how prohibition of some drugs i think is a waste of police time and uh, you know is not a necessary thing in today's society you know we should legalize and regulate them to keep more people safe blah 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 blah. well that's not going to wash if you get caught with a bunch in your pocket at the moment because they're still yeah. illegal and mm -hmm. you still get done so although Mohammed's research into those uh county lines gangs seems like a million miles away from our our life at home there are still there is still a sort of a relevance to understanding a bit about drug dealing and how seriously it's taken by the law particularly because yeah. that that could affect people. What was a bit sad and depressing even for Mohammed and his research is that over the time that he's been doing it, he's not really seeing anyone get out and get, you know, move on from it. Yeah. And, and because there isn't anything really for them to move on to. Hmm. If you, if you have a bit of a if you, you get kicked out of school a lot you know your rough upbringing and you're not doing well then you get in with some drug dealers you know what, what are you what are you supposed to do leave the vicious drug dealers to go and do what 
You know, mm. I think that's the that's the scary thing. Yeah, because the chances are you won't have any qualifications, and then you've just got nowhere to go. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you um, and you'll get at least you're getting money doing what you're doing. And more money than you could get elsewhere without qualifications. Yeah, exactly. You don't pay tax on it. You don't have to work long hours for it. You have a few boring, a few boring bits of the job and a few risky little moments of the job. But then that risky kind of half an hour where you, where you're actually walking down the street with drugs in your pocket and you could get arrested. Once you've given it and sold it quickly to, to the users that you've arranged to meet. You've got all this money in your pocket and no drugs anymore. Well, then you're, you're you're sort of home free, aren't you, for the rest of the day or the rest of the week or whatever, depending on how much you yeah. you sold. And I guess that's a quick, easy way of making the money. Maybe you know, it's risky, but it's if it goes well, it's easy. So yeah, um, and even if there's a technical way out the gang, you've kind of got no way out after that because yeah. if you serve jail time, then no one's going to employ you. Yeah, and I think probably you're always slightly looking over your shoulder, slightly fearful of who you might have upset. Yeah, it's kind of like, it's interesting stuff, but like, it's quite easy to go over right now. Sorry, say again? It's quite interesting stuff in the thing, but like, kind of like, it's not much to talk about, because it's kind of all the facts are laid out. Yes, yeah, I don't know that we... It did feel interesting, but it's a bit far removed from us, isn't it? Yeah, I can't really have a standard point of view on it. No, and I think it, I think it's interesting to maybe more for people that have grown up like me, who are a bit older than, than you, you know, and we've grown up with a, a message that we've been told. This is what drugs are bad, drug dealers are evil people. And, it, and I just started to think, well... Um, no, some of them are just disadvantaged and trying to scratch a living. Yeah, because like my view of a drug dealer is like just like middle-aged, grappy kind of guy, just like on the streets and like not wearing nice clothes. Yeah, and, like not very well kept. But yeah, there's a lot of dealers like that who are users as well. Like they are dependent on a drug, and the way they fund their habit is by selling it on. But then actually, there's a lot of other dealers who don't take the drug themselves and are just interested in the money like, mm. like Mohammed said well um, I watched this movie The Wolf of Wall Street you watched one... that? yeah oh my goodness but it's like about the guy like the stockbroker does the drugs and it's like yeah. it's really good though uh, I feel like I need to have more of a handle on the things you're watching <laughs> that is a terrible yeah they take loads of drugs in that mm. don't they it's funny yes but it was like weird because obviously that was like when is it set again? Uh, that back in nineteen like nineteen fifties, sixties. No, it's later than that. I think it's the eighties and nineties. Hmm. Uh, so, yes, yeah, probably. The it's 1990s. like the like the modern version of the nineteen twenties, where like stocks are like the biggest thing, mm. but without the massive crash that kind of brought the Great Depression. Yeah, and then the, the next big crash was coming uh, in two thousand and eight. Was the was um, when there was a global. Hmm financial crash I don't know whether that is that based on a true story Wolf of Wall Street um yeah I think so yeah right so I don't know when he crashed and burned in reality but in 2008 loads of people would have done but yeah it was interesting kind of stuff in like the podcast yeah yeah good 
Uh, I mean, what's surprising is he's saying like how easy it is to get into drugs, but I can't really see that because like you're, it's only easy to get in if you're in with a certain crowd. Yes. Yeah, and that's good, and I'm relieved to hear that from you. You know, I can't see that at all. It's like when you're, um, you know, in your just experience at school, do you think there are? Do you hear about drugs much at school? Does anyone talk about them? Some people, but it's not really a big topic. No. And do they talk about them in the in a way where they're suggesting that they do them or that they know Some people do, that do yeah. them? And what drugs are they? Weed. About it. Right. Which I think is quite common. I think probably most schools up and down the land at 13, most children will have heard of other people doing drugs. Mm. Um, I think that the big thing about teenage uh, life, we could do that as our David Nutt fact today, the things to tell your children from his book. Um, Professor David Nutt, psychopharmacologist, wrote the book Drugs Without the Hot Air, Minimising the Harms of Legal and Illegal Drugs. And the chapter at the back on um, what you should make sure you tell your children. And um, one of the key ones in here is... Number 11, if you do use drugs, make sure they don't interfere with your schoolwork. <laughs> uh, wait, basically. There was um, a few news stories just at the end of last year, 2018. Uh, some research was done about memory and using cannabis does affect your performance in exams where you, and tests where you need, obviously, to have memory. Uh, good memory of, hmm. of the things you're learning for the test and if you kids that had been and I think it was slightly older than you sort of 16 17 but if they'd been using cannabis regularly up until the test then they performed worse than the ones yeah, that didn't. yeah. and so even if you are going to use cannabis then it's much better to wait until you've finished school don't do it until you're an adult or if you do experiment with it earlier than that, don't do it. Don't do it weekly. Don't do it sort of in and amongst your schoolwork. Because, mm. and if and if you have a regular habit, then try and not smoke at all for a month before an exam, and you'll just do better in the exam. I think that was the yeah. sort of gist of the uh, of the research. Um, so I think yeah, if if kids are doing it at school, it's just, it's just stupid. Yeah, I think so. Cool. Well, um, at the moment, you think you might want to be a police officer, so... Next week will be interesting. Yes. He's a detective, uh, a detective superintendent, so he's kind of in charge of other detectives now, quite senior. And at the major crimes division, so... Yeah, serious and organised crime. Yeah, it'd be good. It'd be interesting. I was terrified when I spoke to him. <laughs> <laughs> he was just... There's just some something... There's something about the way police officers speak to you that's just serious and um, makes you feel nervous even if you haven't done anything wrong so yeah uh, I am um, I found it quite terrifying but uh, when I listened to it it didn't sound like I was scared the whole way through so I think you might enjoy it uh, cool right thank you this is the end so that's it basically thank you very much for listening one little postscript that I found amusing. In some things I've read about the war on drugs, I have heard 
the phrase the unintended consequences of prohibition used. One was in a talk given by a future guest on this podcast, Professor Sue Price, who talked about one of the unintended consequences of the prohibition of drugs. She gave an example of an Australian prison where they had wanted to clamp down on drug use and they'd gone so far as to want to stamp out smoking as well. And so they weren't allowed cigarettes, the prisoners, and they were given nicotine replacement therapy products instead to get them off uh, smoking. The prisoners then crushed up the nicotine tablets and mixed them with tea and smoked them in rolled up pages from the Bibles they were given in their cells. Her point being that humans just have a need to get intoxicated you won't stop them taking drugs. But it was a strange unintended consequence of their prohibition that they ended up smoking the word of the Lord. Unintended consequences then of putting together a podcast called Dad Does Drugs. Uh, someone I know very well uh, bought drugs abroad just recently on a work trip that they told me all about. Um, uh, I won't go into any more details uh, to reveal who they were. Another friend was asking my wife uh, over the weekend whether she could score for them. And when she said, no, I can't, then she said, well, can you ring Bob? Perhaps he can. I was 100 miles away babysitting our children. I wasn't available. Uh, someone I don't know has contacted me through Twitter to inquire how to get on the dark web. They've been listening to this podcast and were intrigued. It's all very funny. I think the middle-aged are just as curious as the young at the moment, and psychedelics, I suppose, have been made quite cool and legitimate. You've got people like Joe Rogan on his podcast um, talking all about experiences with DMT and ayahuasca, and uh, the author Michael Pollan has just written a book. He's a New York Times bestseller. He's written on all sorts of subjects, and he's been writing about being a middle-aged person and getting interested in psychedelics uh, so uh, yeah whatever your reasons are for getting in touch I, I welcome the correspondence thank you very much i'm on twitter at dad does drugs uh, dad does drugs at gmail.com on email and uh, you can find us uh, on facebook as well uh, thank you ever so much uh, to dr mohammed kazim uh, it was really interesting to talk to him thanks for being a guest on the podcast uh, next week it's the police and uh, music you heard in this episode was Steppenwolf Curtis Mayfield Stereo MCs and Bass Hunter uh, I look forward to next week thanks a lot bye <laughs>